Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. It is 12.30, Sunday, August the 30th, 2020, and it is an overdue second attempt on our trip down the homeward path. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work anywhere between 40 and 56 hours a week, and I do this show for one reason, and that reason is this. Magic is hard. Improving at magic is harder. And all of that doubly so when magic is not your number one priority in your life. When other things take precedence, it's harder to keep your nose to the grind on magic. But if we stick to the three Bs, budgeting, brewing, and breaking bad habits, we can overcome. And if that sounds like something, uh, that, that sounds like something you align with, well, get your win conditions ready because we're about to give somebody a glorious end. Uh, it's a good time to remind you before we dive in that we are sponsored by PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest repositories of online magic content on the web, period, point blank, not really any debate there. Just a lot of people making a lot of great stuff. And speaking of a lot of people making a lot of great stuff, I would be remiss if I did not mention our parent network, ConstructedCriticism.com. Uh, there's plenty of fantastic stuff going on over there, too. Whether, as as the intro says, from Pauper Leagues to Top 1000 Mythic, we've got you covered. Get in there. And speaking of get in there, if you want to support this show in a more direct capacity, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. Get in there. Make your, make your pledge. Take advantage of the rewards that are available. And help me keep doing what I love to do. Again, this show's always going to be free, but if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, well, get in there and help me out. So, <clears throat> let's dive into our budget spotlight this week. Budget spotlight is a segment where I highlight cards from various rarities that I feel are criminally underplayed in their respective formats or just in general. And we're going to start things off, we're going to take a little bit of a page away from last week's book, and we're actually going to start with a card that is really, really, really cheap, and will always be really, really, really cheap, but I think it's really, 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 really powerful. In case you hadn't guessed, I'm really excited about this card, and that card is Of One Mind. Of One Mind is two and a blue for a sorcery draw two cards. This card costs two less to cast if you control a human and a non-human creature. So for me, when I first looked at this card, I just, it completely flaked over me. For me, mentally, it was just a bad, like, winged words or charter course or something like that, because for the longest time, I thought that card read, this card costs one less to cast if you control a human and a non-human. And then I looked at it again, and I went, oh, it's not Charter Course, it's not Winged Words, it's Thoughtcast. Those of you who don't know what that is, Thoughtcast is four and a blue, 
draw two cards and it has affinity for artifacts so it costs one generic less for each artifact you control both of them in their quote-unquote powered up states are one mana draw two cards and that's absurdly powerful one mana draw two like we are bending over backwards to add an extra card in treasure cruise right we will play a bunch of stuff that loads our graveyard for the express purpose of getting to play treasure cruise in our decks because ancestral recall is really really powerful and the only thing we have to do is play magic for a few turns in order to facilitate it and play a few things that help us load the graveyard kind of organically you typically want some amount of graveyard synergy in your treasure cruise decks you can get by without it for sure but typically speaking it's a card that's played in decks that have a lot of velocity you just play a lot of stuff draw a lot of cards see a lot of cards and then eventually you find treasure cruise with a whole bunch of cantrips in your graveyard in order to turn it on that's not what we're here for this time of one mind the synergy cost is really 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 low i.e for thoughtcast you have to play a bunch of artifacts in your deck now that was mitigated by the presence of the artifact lands but it's very telling that in modern it's not worth playing thought casting your affinity decks because you're playing artifacts that all cost mana now you can't turn one ancient den ornithopter springleaf drum arcbound worker frogmite and have thought cast for one mana on turn two with access to three Or, you know, with Mox Opal Band, obviously you can't do all of that. Then drop Opal, then cast, thought cast, and draw two. It's very telling that none of the actual affinity for artifacts cards appear in the actual affinity deck in Modern because the synergy cost of playing them is too high. I.e., you have to have a lot of stuff on the battlefield for them to be good. That's not the case with Up One Month. To put it in perspective, from a mana efficiency standpoint, if you're casting of one mind for its full retail price, for the cost printed on the card, it's still better than like, it, it's the same as a thought cast that you've already put some work into. That's a thought cast that you've cast two artifacts for. Now, Obviously, if you have two humans on the battlefield or two non-humans on the battlefield, it doesn't matter. It's still going to be three mana. But several cards fulfill the condition of giving you one human and one non-human all by their lonesome. In standard, Lovestruck Beast is a card that exists. Jalrael is a card that exists. For example, if you cast Heart's Desire on turn one, Lucky Clover on turn two, Love Struck Beast on turn three. Well, then when you untap for turn four, you can start the turn by casting of one mind and drawing two cards, presuming your opponent doesn't interact with you in any meaningful fashion. To say nothing of the benefits of just playing, you know, Edgewall Innkeeper, Flaxen Intruder, if that's your jam, it is mine, it's not everybody's. I like Flaxen Intruder because it makes the mirrors a little bit more interesting. It makes your opponent have one more thing to deal with. It's a way to break the mirror, too, because Lucky Clover is really good in the mirror. 
and being able to blow it up with a card that's also valuable when you have your own late in the game. Like, it's good with both halves of your, your synergy pieces, right? Like, it's, it's, it's a whole different discussion. But it's, you know, to, to kind of eloquently make the point here, it is as good as a medium thought cast all the time, and it's as good as a full-powered thought cast more of the time. Which is to say, less work goes into making it a very good magic card. And it also just slots into several decks very easily because of the cards that fulfill its condition on their own. I already mentioned a lot of the adventure synergy with Lovestruck Beast, Edgewall Innkeeper, Flex, and Intruder are both humans. All your other adventure creatures are non-humans and teamer. In uh, Sultai, you have Falmire Knight, Order of Midnight. There's a little bit more of a spread. Um, Murderous Rider is also human. So you end up with less non-humans and more humans, but you can make up the difference because of access to... You still have Lovestruck Beast. You still have Falmire Knight. You still have Brazen Borrower. You still have Fay of Wishes. Like, it's painfully easy to turn this card on in the adventure decks. By contrast, there's the possibility of playing it in Teamer, Sultai, Bant, Simic. Basically, Blue-Green X mid-range in Standard or Pioneer or Historic. Wherein you can cast Jaw Rail on turn two, cast Uro on turn three, make a cat, and if the board stays intact, you have of one mind to start turn four before you start digging for more stuff. Or, if you have another blue source in your hand, you can actually do it right then. Either you have it or you draw it off the Uro. Because Jarrell on two, Uro on three, draw a card, make a cat, play a land, cast of one mind, draw two. Come on. That's filthy. You're already rocketing ahead of them just because of the existence of Uro, and now we're going to push that even further. So moving from common to uncommon, we go from a card draw spell to a recovery spell in Call the Death Dweller. Two and a black. Return up to two creatures with convert total converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Put a death touch counter on one and a lifelink counter on one. They can be the same creature or you can split them up. Even in its fair, quote unquote, fair mode, this card is really good in aggressive decks that are splashing black. Now, I've cast it several times for the express purpose of bringing back Robber of the Rich and uh, Fanatical Firebrand. Give the Robber of the Rich Menace, give the Fanatical Firebrand Death Touch. So you brought back a removal spell and functionally a card draw spell. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But it can go from a fair card to an unfair card with not a ton of work. You know, it can bring back two-thirds of... Oh, what is it? What am I trying to say here? I mean, it can bring back either half of the Vizier of Remedies Devoted Druid combo. It can bring back uh, Seer and an Aristocrat's payoff, so all you need is the, the creature to loop. Like, the card's just really good. <laughs> Give your Mayhem Devil Death Touch and thank me later. 
Ew. But that's not to say that that's all of that's the most interesting application because I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my number one triple color costed dork in Goblin Chain Whirler. Because turns out when you give Goblin Chain Whirler death touch, a lot of stuff dies. As long as it gets death touch before its ability resolves. And in particular, it revives, you know, Call the Death Dweller revives the creature. Chain Whirler conveniently costs three mana. It puts both the counters on it if it's the only thing you bring back. And then you give it death touch, you know, it, it gets the counter, so it gets death touch and menace. And then its ability goes on the stack. An ability that deals one damage to each opponent and to each creature and planeswalker those players control. That's really good. That's really, really, really good. To give that thing death touch. I've had opponents play into it more times than I can count because they just don't see the line for me. You know, I, I go Fanatical Firebrand on one opponent playing Mono White. Life Gain says Healer's Hawk. Well, we go Rick's Mighty Reveler on two, discard Chain Whirler, draw a card. They go barf a bunch of barf a bunch of creatures onto the table. Cast a venerated Loxodon. Pass the turn. And we just draw, go black source, call the death dweller, kill all your stuff. They have one card in hand and are staring down six power. Three of it with first strike, death touch, and menace. And that's not, a, that's not you know, that alone is not to be underestimated, right? Chain Whirler having first strike, and then in that situation also having death touch and menace. That thing is, undis- that thing is basically reads 3-3 unblockable. Like, come on. That's absurd. It's ridiculous. There's no reason for that. Uh, and it can play in both aggro and mid-range concepts. It's not a dedicated, aggressive deck card the way a lot of other cards you would normally play in your Mono Red or Rakdos or Gruul decks are. You don't mind playing Call the Death Dweller for value. You don't have to have like a dedicated combo around it for it to be a really good magic card. As I said earlier, if all it's doing is bringing back creatures in your aggro deck, if it brings back a Gruul Spellbreaker because you decided you were going to go crazy and splash black into your, your Gruul aggro deck, and you bring back your Gruul Spellbreaker, and you just have a 3-3 haste menace death touch, trample. Anytime you can put a lot of text on a card, it's pretty powerful. And that's exactly what Call of the Death Dweller does with basically any three drop you would want to bring back with it. But the real intrigue is in bringing back the ones and twos. Again, the scenario I outlined earlier, bringing back a fanatical firebrand and a robber of the rich. You get a removal spell and a card draw spell. That's not, that's not awful. Like you trade one card for potentially two or three of theirs. It's a way to juice up the value of your aggro deck, give your aggro deck the ability to grind. But it's also a way to juice up your aggressive tendencies because you can do something silly like in your Selesnya Counters deck, bring back Pelt Collector and Conclave Mentor. They enter the battlefield at the same time. Pelt Collector sees the Conclave Mentor, gets two counters, 
Now you got a 3-3 and a 2-2. You just revived five power. Maybe you put the Menace on the Conclave Mentor and the Death Touch on the Pelt Collector because the Pelt Collector is going to have Trample like real soon. Maybe that's something you do. I don't know. I don't usually play abs in piles, but, you know, some people do, and I respect their decision. And respecting decisions goes into our rare well, because our rare, we're going to be talking about the two wish cards that are currently legal and standard. One will be rotating, the other will be staying around. Those two cards are specifically the adventure half of Fae of Wishes and Granted. Three and a blue, search your, search, for the purposes of tournament play, search your sideboard for a non-creature card, reveal it, put it into your hand. And the other is Karn the Great Creator, which is a planeswalker that says, search your sideboard for an artifact, reveal it, and put it into your hand. Both of these cards are really, really, really good. Four mana wishes, like, that are less conditional than any other one that I've ever gotten to play with, full disclosure. Uh, The ones that I played... Let me give you the rundown on the Wish cards that I've ever played in my lifetime. I played a little bit of Burning Wish before I played my my first ill-fated PTQ. I played Burning Wish in the Storm deck that I played for that, and I was really bad at Magic at the time, so I didn't get to appreciate it. Uh, I played Cunning Wish because I played the Carlos Ramal Psychotog deck verbatim as an attempt to kind of learn for lack of a better term, to kind of learn what uh, what good decks felt like. How good decks played. and Having access to an instant toolbox was really powerful. But of course, you only get to do it once per copy. Right? And then Glittering Wish was a card I desperately tried to make good, but it just frankly wasn't. And then outside of that, the wishes that I've seen in Standard in my time We've got cards like, uh, what is it? Cards like, trying to think, trying to think. Uh, The Vivian, Arcbow Ranger. uh, There's, there's a, there's a list anyway. I don't have, I don't have the mental fortitude in the car at the moment to go through and figure that one out. But each of those wishes had a key component that these really don't. One, they were a little bit more restrictive. All the original wishes were restricted to a particular card type in the color identity that they were a part of. And in the case of Glittering Wish, you could only get multicolored cards. In the case of uh, you know, Vivian Monster's Advocate, you can only... Or not Monster's Advocate. Arcbow Ranger, you can only get Creatures. Fae of Wishes just says non-creature card. Karn the Great Creator just says artifact. Which means you don't necessarily have to go get a big, dumb, powerful thing. But more important than any of that, wish effects are generally very powerful. But the real secret to these two and the reason they're so good is because they're reusable. The ability to keep going back for more. For those of you who don't know, in the case of Fae of Wishes, the creature half has the ability to pay two, discard two cards, and put it back in your hand. 
And in conjunction with Lucky Clover, you can actually get extra wishes every time you cast it. Frequently for me, that means casting it on turn four to go get a land and a haymaker because I know that way I know I'm going to hit my next land draw. Or if I've done the Lucky Clover into Fertile Footsteps thing on turn four, I will go get a land in order to make a land drop right then and then have another one lined up for next turn so I can hit my next two and be able to cast another powerful spell. Kind of an important thing. Play lands in your granted boards. Just do it. Just one, but do it. Uh, in regards to Karn, the thing that makes Karn so nice is not only that you can go get powerful sideboard cards like Grafdigger's Cage, like Tormod's Crypt, like uh, Soul Guide, Lantern, God Pharaoh's Statue, whatever. You can certainly go get all those things that put tighten the screws and put your opponent often out of the ability to play magic against you, but you can also turn them into win conditions while pumping your Karn up to keep things going. And that's really, really powerful. But in the case of both cards, they are really, really good because they not only, not only can they hamstring your opponent's development or shut the door when you've started to pull ahead, they do more than that. Because they can also then turn around and help your deck's core engine to pull ahead. And that is unbelievably powerful in a format in standard and to a lesser extent historic that revolves around versatility, that revolves around grinding capacity because of the existence of Uro. You know, all of this is really important to these kinds of decks. And more than that, more than any of the rest of it, the reusability, the fact that you can go get powerful cards, is the fact that, you know, several several decks in respective formats, you know, standard decks that are built around Uro, or uh, basically every historic deck, get bodied by the existence of Grafdigger's Cage. Now, notably in Historic, Grafdigger's Cage does literal nothing to God Pharaoh's gift decks, and that's okay. We can live with it. The fact of the matter is, access to back-breaking sideboard cards in game one, like, there are so many decks you will run into on Arena that are game one decks. Mono Red, uh, the sacrifice decks where they are built to just be as linear as possible in game one and then proceed to find a way to remove your key sideboard technology in game two or three and try to get you get the best of you in three games that way so if you can steal that first game by being able to hamstring their engine i mean look at historic what are the best decks in historic right now you have various flavors of Uro mid-range. Graph Digger's Cage keeps Uro from coming out of the graveyard. Uh, you have the Bolus's Citadel Collected Company Sacrifice decks. Uh, Graph Digger's Cage stops Cauldron Familiar from coming out of the graveyard. It stops Collected Company from resolving. It stops Bolus's Citadel from casting spells from the top of the deck. Goblins. Muxus. No. Not happening. Conspicuous Snoop. Not happening. 
experimental frenzy out of the sideboard of the the burn decks or the main board of the burn decks. No, not casting a bunch of spells off the top of your library after you've run out of gas. You know, it's it's particularly backbreaking when your opponent invests in that card. That's what makes it really fun. Is a card like you know, your opponent invests in experimental frenzy because they've kind of blown their blown their load for lack of a better term on you know they they've they fired their shot through the first four turns and they use experimental frenzy to try to reload but you're on the play and you go turn four Karn or granted go get grab diggers cage play it well now they can't cast cards in their hand and they also can't cast spells from their library nor can they cast them out of the graveyard for the purposes of like aftermath cards or what have you so their response is, guess I'll die eventually. Like that's what we're that's what we're dealing with. That's what makes it so intriguing to have access to wish cards is the fact that you can shut your opponent out in game one. Yuck. Shouldn't be allowed, but it is. And not only can we do it, we can do it with some amount of regularity. And we don't mind having Karn like the, the cards also have additional utilities, just top to bottom. The cards are really powerful, and they should definitely cost way more money than they do. And last but not least, we have our mythic for this week, which is Liliana, Waker of the Dead. And you want to talk about a card that compares favorably to an eternal staple, look no further. Liliana's really, really powerful. You get the ability to make both players discard, and then if they can't, they lose three life. So that's a win condition in and of itself because it will slowly whittle their hand down until it starts killing them. All while building up to an ultimate that allows you to take a creature from somebody's graveyard every single turn. It compares really favorably to Liliana of the Veil, especially in Standard, where Eliminate is a a staple, a format staple in decks that are playing black. Being a Liliana the Veil clone that's just a little bit better but costs one more mana, that one more mana is huge because it means they can't eliminate her. Now they have to be playing cards like Bedevil, Murderous Rider, Eat to Extinction. And as we'll mention momentarily, there's not a lot of that going on. At four mana, it can be cast after a hard counter or a sweeper, whether you're on the play or the draw. On the play, you get to counter their three drop and then just slam that thing on the board. On the draw, it's even better because she allows you to catch up. You can counter their four drop, which is frequently going to be some kind of powerful engine card, be it you know, their, their turn four play is usually, you know, Nissa who shakes the world, uh, big hydroid crisis, sometimes just going all the way in on Ugin. So the ability to represent a, a counter spell or a hard removal spell on turn three to create a tempo window in which to jam this Liliana onto the table and start to dominate, that's a big game. That's big deal. And then the emblem doesn't require any specific kind of deck building. 
If you're a mid-range deck, well, you've got creatures of your own. You've got some stuff you can bring back. But even as a control deck, you're playing a bunch of counter spells. You're playing a bunch of removal. To quote Sam Elliott in uh, We Were Soldiers, I'm sure there'll be plenty of them laying around. <laughs> so just top to bottom, why is this card $6? First of all, why is a mythic four mana planeswalker $6? Like, and a, a mythic four-mana planeswalker that lives up to being a mythic four-mana planeswalker. How is that only $6? But, more than that, why is that specific one only $6? It should be considerably more than that. Because we should be trying to play this card a lot more frequently. And if you want to look at something with which to play Liliana Waker the Dead, look no further than our Brew of the Week. This week we're going to be talking about Demir Control, and it, it's less of a fully realized archetype and more of like a, oh, what's the word here? Less of a fully realized archetype and more of a concept, because I cannot find a stock list that is both good and bad. It's bad because it's going to be hard to, to nail down what your flex slots are, what you need versus what you don't, so on and so forth. But it's good because neither can your opponent. So they don't necessarily know what to be playing around. The, the draws to Demir Control over, over Blue-White are thus. You get, some of the, you get several of the best reactive options in Standard. You get the best sweeper in Standard in Extinction Event because it exiles Uro. It exiles Seasoned Hallowblade. It exiles Selfless Savior. It exiles stuff. It's a surgical sweeper. You can play creatures of your own alongside of it with the goal being to snipe down the stuff that is the opposite of what yours is. So you can you can use Extinction Event as a, as a surgical tool or as an atom bomb. And that's something I mentioned in last week's episode. You also get the best small ball board sweeper in Cry of the Carnarium. Cry of the Carnarium opens you up to the possibility of just clearing out the, the chaff from the board in order to dominate the mid-game. Cry of the Carnarium is absolutely stellar against the Winota decks because you just get everything. Like, even if they curve out and play Venerated Loxodon, the only thing Cry of the Carnarium doesn't kill is the Venerated Loxodon. And maybe they're Stone Coil Serpents if they're playing them. But for example, the, the list that Spencer did the, the Boros Winota deck tech on. If you cry the Carnarium that deck, and you hit Season Hallowblade, Grim Initiate, Legion Warboss, and the token it left behind, they don't have anything for turn four. They can play Winota, but nothing's going to happen. Grim Initiate doesn't leave behind in a mass token. Season Hallowblade can't discard a card to protect itself. So, like, the ability to catch up against small creature decks and have a blowout card in Extinction Event against bigger creature decks are both very, very appealing to the Demir Control strategy. With access to a Disruption Package with Thought Erasure, Agonizing Remorse, and Duress, that is unreasonably powerful. The ability to just kind of look at your opponent's hand and get rid of whatever you can't beat. 
cannot be understated as to how powerful that is. I can't, I can't bring that enough. I can't bring enough of that. I can't bring enough smoke about that one. Just, just try it. Having access to discard, in particular, agonizing remorse that's exile. So it gets around Uro's escape. It gets around Crox's escape. It gets around uh, stuff coming out of the graveyard. It gets around, you know, you can also look at their hand to get an idea of what they're doing and then just exile the Uro they played. It's just a very, very powerful magic card at doing exactly what you need it to do. Thought Erasure combines Thought Seize with a little bit of card selection. And instead of costing two life, it just costs an extra mana. That's fine. You can load your own escape cards or graveyard synergies, get everything loaded up. Or just make sure you're hitting your land drops and smooth out bricky draws. It's just really good. No more Teferi Time Raveler means you can play counter spells again. That's really important. Being able to play counter spells is big game when we're talking about a format that wants to play big, powerful magic cards. One of the ways control decks get to keep up with those is the ability to just tell your opponent, no, play the fun police a little bit. Just don't be arrogant about it. You know, that, that is not a prerequisite for playing counter spells. Uh, eliminate, Eat to Extinction, Murderous Rider, more specifically Swift End, are all great spot removal options. In particular, Eat to Extinction is really good because it exiles. I keep coming back to it, but it keeps being relevant. Exile removal that hits a creature or planeswalker and also tacks on a little bit of uh, card selection. Three and a black, exile target creature, planeswalker, functionally surveil one even if it isn't actually mechanically surveil one they just didn't want to put the word surveil on it with cards like disinformation campaign and you know powerhouse cards in standard like demir spybug and disinformation campaign but i digress and then last but not least for those reactive elements drown in the lock is one that i'm really high on because it offers you a lot of versatility as a card that is functionally a split card for the same mana cost of Counterspell or Terminate. For a blue and a black, you get your choice of Counterspell or Terminate as long as you've been playing Magic for a few turns. That's really, really, really good. And then, depending on how you, like, all those interactive elements are the key to getting you started in this archetype, but how you want to actually win the game is what dictates your other card choices. Because, frankly, your end game is your list of flex slots. Like, that's, that's the long and short of it. Your end game defines your flex slots. Because all everything's a flex slot, except for the interactive elements. Your flex slots are how you want to kill them. And that's okay. Uh... Where am I? We're going to go this way. I think. But. There's several engines available to a Demir control deck in order to win the game. You have Planeswalkers. There's a lot of Planeswalkers in Standard that fit into Demir. You have Ashiok Nightmare Muse. You have 
Teferi Master of Time. You have uh, Narset Parter of Veils. You have Ashiok Dream Render, if that's that's your jam. You have, uh, oh, what is that card's name? Both of the Lilianas, Waker of the Dead and Dreadhorde General. There's just, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. There's a lot to choose from when you want to look for Planeswalkers to win the game with. So you can just play like a Demir Planeswalker show and make it to where your creature-oriented board wipes never actually hit anything of yours. Or if they do, it's tokens you got for pluses off of your Planeswalkers. Be they Lilianas or whatever. You've got access to Tempo. I played against this the other day on Arena, and I was starstruck. I was excited. I was, I was, I was enthralled by the prospect of playing Demir with Thieves Guild Enforcer and uh, Thieves Guild Enforcer, Vantress Gargoyle, and or Stormwing Entity as a way to take the fight to your opponent. You can flash in a Thieves Guild Enforcer at the end of their first turn, whether you're on the play or the draw. Untap, cast a disruption spell. Untap, cast another power card. You know, cast a Vantress Gargoyle with a, another dis, uh, a disruption effect up, whatever. Just keep on going. So, you know, the, the opponent, my opponent played really well. I just got unbelievably lucky. And had the nuts in mono red, in particular with a Torbrand on the battlefield, top decking back to back. Uh, I top decked back to back shocks with a Torbrand on the battlefield. Both times my opponent cast Vantress Gargoyle to block. It doesn't get much luckier than that. But the prospect of playing Thieves Guild Enforcer and Vantress Gargoyle, Vantress Gargoyle basically like a Tarmogoyf flies and Thieves Guild Enforcer like a Delver of Secrets that requires a little less build around. Like both of those things are appealing. Uh, you can go with a classic control implementation. A lot of card draw, Lockmere Serpent, Shark Typhoon. Just don't give them a lot to choose from, right? That's fine. That's that's respectable. It's a thing we get to do sometimes. You can do a rock mid-range style with adventure creatures, Baron, Maze Mind Tome, some Haymakers. Uh, it was something I've been a part of building, and it's something that's really appealing. When you can pick up your, your murderous rider that's already killed a creature and maybe stonewalled a creature in combat and draw a card. Like, adventure creatures are already functional two-for-ones, and then you tack on the ability to uh, make them into actual two-for-ones. That's something I can get behind. Something I like doing. And then you can go with uh, the Flash deck. You can play Slither Wisp and Sea Dasher Octopus and your Omens and just try to play your whole game on their turn. Whatever the case may be, the fact remains that Demir reactive decks are viable in standard and a lot of it is on the back of the reactive elements they have access to. You just kind of choose how you plan on winning the game. And sometimes winning the game is harder than it seems, harder than it feels like it should be based on the matchup. And that brings us to our main topic, the anatomy of the comeback. 
which is an appropriate one because I, I posted a video on YouTube this week from one of my other hobby games in Mobile Suit Gundam Battle Operation 2 in which we got just devastated to start the game off. Our opponent, you know, we were down two people. The enemy team rushed our base, just beat us down real bad. And we were left scratching and clawing trying to figure out what we were going to do. And we ended up coming back from a really rough start and securing the win. And I had already made the decision in large part to do something about the anatomy of the comeback this week before realizing based on that game that like it was perfect. I feel like, you know, the Magic the Gathering version of Team Four Stars Goku. How did you figure out how to do that? Oh, I just treated it like one big game of Magic. Kind of like I do everything. <laughs> but I digress. There are three questions to ask when you find yourself in that situation. When you find yourself getting beaten down behind the eight ball, trying to figure out how you're going to come back and do what you plan to do. What do we have? What do we need? And how do we get it? And rather than just talk about how it applies to a game in front of you, I want to talk about how it applies at all three levels in a given evening or a given day. So for starters, we're going to talk about how those three questions revolve or how you go through those three questions when you're behind the eight ball in a game of magic. You apply the questions in a top-down order. What do we have? Well, what's the board state look like? When I say, what do we have, I mean, what do we both have? What do they have on the table? What do I have on the table? What's the board state look like? How many cards do we both have in our hand? What you're trying to assess is any scenario where you're ahead. If it's cards in hand, you can play to that. You can try to create a scenario where you catch up on the board and then are ahead of them in cards, right? Well, on that logic, what are our outs? For example, if a mono red deck comes in swinging and gets you down to like five really quick, what are the outs that you have to this situation? Sometimes it's as simple as resolving a board wipe. Sometimes it's as simple as uh, managing the correct threats with your spot removal. Sometimes it's a case of I gotta, I have to draw specifically these cards in specifically this order in order to, to crawl back into this. And that's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But whatever the case may be, you have to identify, like, how in the world am I going to win this game? Right? That's, that's what I mean when I ask the question, what are our outs? How in the world can I win this game? Not just how can I catch up, but how do I win from here? And you play to whatever that is. And what I mean by that, you ask question three, how do I get there? What do they likely have based on how they've been playing? Because it does, it does you no good whatsoever to play to your outs and then just completely ignore the fact that your opponent's telegraphing to you that they have Embercleave. And you're just already dead. 
take that to the next level. What do we do when we find ourselves down 0-1 in a, in a match? Well, from there, we start in the middle. What do we need? We already know what we have. What we have is an 0-1 record and what probably feels like a bad matchup. So what do we need? What's our sideboard plan? What are we bringing in? What are we, what are we taking out? Do we have a good sideboard plan against this opponent? How are we finding our sideboard cards? Are we playing a bunch of cards that do the same thing for redundancy to make sure we draw something similar? I.e., you know, the the Jeff Hoagland frequently references the all Doom Blades on deck matchups, where you just board into every spot removal spell you can and try to two for one your way through it with with card draw. Is that your line? If it is, that's what you have to play to. You have to board them in, you have to board out the stuff that's not as good, kill all their creatures one one for one, and take advantage of whatever card advantage engines you have available to you. Well, is it through card filtering? Like in the Phoenix decks or the 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 prowess decks? Do you board in some cards with the idea that you know I'm only boarding in five cards for this matchup, but I'm gonna be able to find them because I see so many anyway? Or are you an aggro deck that's just going to have to aggressively mulligan to make sure you have a hand that does what you need to do? How are they likely to sideboard against us? That goes back to what do we both have? What do we all have? Does that change how we sideboard or how we plan on finding the cards we have? For example, if an opponent boards into a card like Deafening Silence or um, like if, if your opponent has access to Narset Parter Veils and they're 75 and your sideboard plan is dedicated toward finding it with card selection, you're going to have a bad time. So maybe make sure you have what, you know, you board in additional copies for some redundancy. You board in some more removal to take care of Narset because that card just beats you anyway. And then last, how viable is what our deck does after sideboard? How badly did you get destroyed in the first game? You know, was it a close game that you just came out on the bad end of, that you feel like you can play your way through with just a few modifications? Or is it a blowout and it doesn't really matter what we board into, we're going to get destroyed anyway? It's important to ask the right questions. And last but not least when it comes to levels of applying this theory, let's talk about in the event. You start from the bottom, work your way up. But, I would argue you start even further than the bottom. Because the first thing you do when you find yourself down 0-1 in the tournament, or down 0-2 in the tournament, take a deep breath, blow it out, deep inhale, forceful exhale, relax your body, relax your mind, clear your mind, Clear the deck, so to speak. Get what I did there? See what I did there? And take stock. How do I get there? How do we get to what we need? Well, what we need is our goal for the tournament. How do we get to what we got to do? How many matches of Magic do I have to win? Ask yourself that question. Brutally honestly, not just how many matches do we have to win, but 
how likely I am to win them. Reassess your goal. Do I still have a realistic chance of winning this event? If not, reassess the goal. Maybe you go from trying to win the event to just trying to break even. We'll try again next time. See if we can steal a couple from them, mess up somebody's tiebreakers. You know, get there in that regard. What have we done wrong? Why are we 0-2? What was within our control that we did incorrectly? That's the number one question to ask yourself. Did I do this? Did I do this or did something else happen? Start by examining yourself, then worry about the things you can't control. Those things, what has the rest of the room done, right? Did the did those two opponents play decks that were just something you didn't prepare for? Did you did they did they play very well? Did they just get really good hands? What has gone right for everybody else to put you in this position? But always go to that last. Don't let that be at the forefront of your decision-making process when it comes to your goals for the event or taking stock of where you are. And all of these inform your decision to either drop from the event or to continue playing. And I, to put it in perspective, I did this myself uh, back when Is It Phoenix was still legal feels like yesterday, but it's been a year ago, in a modern event in which I found myself frequent, I found myself 0-1 to start the evening. I said, okay, well, what has the rest of the room done right? Well, nothing particularly out of the ordinary, just I wasn't really prepared for this deck and I played poorly, kept hands that didn't get enough of a a quick clock, opponent played really well. I, you know, I made mistakes, opponent did not, we got, you know, we got, we got beat. So I took a deep breath, I had, you know, forceful exhale, it would have been really easy to let that bother me, destroy what I was trying to do. But I didn't. I took stock of where I was, it was 0-1. What has to happen for me to win the event? Well, I got to win three in a row and then I have to get really lucky. Well, sometimes you win three in a row. I mean, this was an FNM. It wasn't exactly anything, you know, major. It wasn't like a Grand Prix. Although I feel like I admirably uh, fought back when I did play my Grand Prix. But that tournament gave me some good general advice that I like that I want to pass on here, too. The first thing is don't try to do it all at once. When you're down 0-1 in a, in a four-round event at home, you're not going to win all three of those matches by quickly destroying your next opponent, by just trying to kill them as quickly as possible and ignoring what they might have, not playing good magic. Focus on making each correct decision in front of you. To make the sports cliche, just take it one play at a time. One play, one decision, one sequencing choice. And just focus on making every decision as correctly as you possibly can. 
using every scrap of information you can get based on how they're playing, what they have, number of cards in their hand. You can gauge what they likely have. Get a read. Play correctly. Step two, realize it is very possible for you to do everything right and still lose. That's not weakness. That's not ineptitude. That's life. It happens. Playing on arena should teach everybody that pretty quickly. Focus on what matters and worry about what you can control. Because you can't worry about what, how lucky your opponent's got. You can't worry about how badly your deck mana screwed you. You can't change that. What you can change is your mulligan decisions. Maybe don't keep that one lander if, if you know the cards aren't flowing correctly. If you know, you know, you're realizing you didn't have enough cantrips to get away with playing as low a land count as you did. And then take these as the learning opportunities they are. Win or lose, the experience of trying is still going to be valuable. And that takes me back to Grand Prix Memphis in 2019. I started that event 0-2 by playing against two decks that I had never seen. I played against a, a Mardu mid-range deck that was uh, loaded down with spot removal that played around the dive downs that the, deck, the mono blue deck I was playing was so well known for by playing Mortify to snipe the Curious Obsession because, you know, if you keep Curious Obsession off the table, that mono blue deck's just not very good. By playing Sacrifice Effects, by playing Hand Disruption, Main Deck Duress, Rekindling Phoenix after they clear out our counter spells. It was just a, it was a matchup made in my nightmares. And I lost that one. I said, okay, well, we're 0-1, we can get the next one. And then I got destroyed by a Goblin's deck. Because I was expecting them to be the mono-red deck when they started on Fanatical Firebrand. Then they went Goblin Instigator, and I was like, well, that's a little weird, but, you know, we can keep going, we can try to race them, and then they chain world. Like, oh, it's definitely mono-red, and then they just, like, untap on turn four, play Goblin Trash Master, and smack me in the face. Oh, I guess those are all goblins. And we were not sideboarded. We weren't built for that matchup. And we got destroyed in game two as well. Well, then we went on to play round three. I said, well, I'm 0-2. I don't really have a realistic shot at winning this event because I would have to go on an unholy winning streak against a room full of players who clearly prepared for this event better than I did. So my, new, my goal has changed. Let's see if we can make day two. Let's see if we can battle back. I want to try to break, you know, I want to try with everything I've got in me to get there to day two. Zero margin for error, so I know it's probably not going to happen, but I just want to try, you know. And I played against Bant Hadana's Climb, and my opponent slammed a Lyra Dawnbringer onto the table. And I had uh, Terramander wearing Curious Obsession, 
cards in my hand, four cards in my graveyard, or four instants and sorceries in my graveyard, and like six mana available. And I said, well, my out in this situation is for them to block with this Lyra. Because if they block with Lyra, they're going to die. Because they will be out of ways to interact. You know, otherwise, the only thing I could do was bounce it and replay it. Like Lyra stonewalls my Tempest gens, my, my biggest, baddest creatures in the matchup. I can, like, finesse my way through it maybe if things go right. But I really just need them to block with it. So I just declared the attack. They looked at everything, thought about it for a minute, and then just slammed the Lyra in front of it. And I said, adapt. And they said, oh. So Terramander becomes a 6-6. Opponent gains 5 life. Lyra's dead. Now they can't race me. They can Growth Chamber Guardian, put a counter on it, go get another one, play a Growth Chamber Guardian, adapt it, go get another one. But none of that blocks a 6-6 Terramander that draws a card. And we still have access to Merfolk Trickster. We still have access to... Uh... Drawing a blank here. You know, we still had access to a, lot, a litany of options at our disposal anyway. Ended up stealing that match. Well, then I ended up playing the Mono Blue Mirror and just, you know, focused on what mattered. The most important card in the matchup is an active Curious Obsession. Whoever has the most Curious Obsession hits is probably going to win because you were drawing cards for no effort. And when my opponent tapped out on turn two to play Curious Obsession on their Miscloaked Herald and Siren Storm Tamer, and I got to untap an entrancing melody that miscloaked Harold. That's a really good feeling. Like a really, really good feeling. Sometimes you're out as your opponent's mistake. You know, that was game three. Ended up coasting through game three to get that win. And then I played against a Rakdos aggro deck that I had not seen. And I got destroyed, and that was the end of my tournament. But I made the attempt. I battled back. I was proud of myself. I felt like I played good magic when I played against the decks that I'd seen before. And that was a confidence booster, even though I didn't get the end result I wanted. So let that be your lesson if I have to give you anything from this episode. So with all of that, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to reach out, Find me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. Join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, if you become a patron, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord where we discuss episode topics, deck lists. Uh, at some point, I don't know when, if I can get enough interest in it, enough people on board, we are going to look to start doing some Arena FNM tournaments with the listeners of Homeward Path, and I look forward to being able to do that, but I can't seem to get a lot of interest, so if you are interested, you need to let me know. And all that out of the way, let's go into the best segment every week. It's it's not particularly close. It's time for hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. And it begins... 
Where'd it go? Where did it go? Did I do that one already? I did do that one already. Did I do that one already? No. It begins with uh, Titan Smash MTG, who says, I wonder if today's bands open up the playing field. Get it? Because they ban Field of the Dead. Oh, that one's good. Love that one. And then we ended up in a in a thread that was started by, and I'm sure I'm butchering this name, uh, Maishael. I'm not mistaken, your name is John. It says, I have an idea. Hit me with your best MTG puns. Gita Soft R rated, preferably. To which Drac V Popper had to jump right in and tag me because, you know, I'm like Superman. I know where I'm needed. I said, wow, way to put me under duress. Let's keep things clean fall as we embark on a plane-wide celebration of MTG dad jokes. And it just went off the rails then. We have a, but first, did you do you pay the one? I said, wow, you have me under a smothering tithe. Careful not to let your aspirations wilt away. He says, I'm sure the tax on you isn't bribery, but I'll stay tall as a beanstalk as long as I'm able to weather the storm. To which my response was, Best hope that storm isn't a rain of gore or you'll find yourself in everlasting torment. To which his response was, I think I have a glimmer of hope left. We're just name dropping. And name dropping can be fun. Drac V says it was a stroke of genius to have a dad jokes thread. I'll brainstorm to see what I can come up with. John says, let me know what you ponder up. <laughs> it's just, it's just fantastic. Let's see, where's the rest of these? There were some more. We had some more uh, softballs over the plate. Uh, Magic the Fathering says, Some people have an affinity for this sort of humor, but it pains me to dredge such things from my brain, so I'll just storm away and burn off my frustration with a nice bowl of Cheerios. I'll see myself out. Please don't. This is what we're here for. It's the whole point. John says, Find yourself a challenge. There's a chalice. There's a void at this table you might fill. Blacker Lotus says, is it a punt? To which John says, shockingly, not one other person forked into this guilty pleasure. <laughs> I love it. I love it when I get to read a bunch of these. And then last but not least, we had Rachel Agnes, who was tagged by someone said, hey, when you do your hair, do you braid it or is it completes? Which is funny because Phyrexians and Rachel's a big fan of Phyrexians for reasons. She said it's complete, but only after I soak it in oil. <laughs> I tagged it with hashtag MTG Dad Joke. She responded, eh, it's my Twitter. It's just my Twitter. And that's good. That's a good thing. Unbearably wholesome. <laughs> but all that out of the way, we're gonna we're gonna sign off for this week. Again, I hope you enjoyed everything. Uh, questions, comments, concerns. Hit the various social media sites. Remember to support the show either by going to our sponsor or by, you know, you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash homerpathmtg. And I will leave you with our traditional sign-off every week. Everybody's going through a lot of stuff right now between COVID, social issues, election politics being the horrible horrible depressor of the human psyche that they are there's a lot going on that is just not sitting well with mental health for people so when you're dealing with other people 
please remember the words of wisdom from Peter Capaldi's 12th Doctor. Never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So, laugh hard. Come back. Be kind. And we'll catch you in two weeks. No episode next week. As there's a lot of stuff going on here, we're just going to take a nice week off to kind of relax, reflect, and Sarah's likely going to be having surgery Tuesday, so I'm going to need to be on hand to help with all of the recovery from that. So I will catch you all in two weeks. Stay safe and come back.